This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. All right, well, let's go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It's a great passage we're on tonight. Paul says in 4.1, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not acquitted by this. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. This, uh, this passage is on um, Christian leadership. And it seems to me today that we, we have two extremes when it comes to Christian leadership. So... It seems to me that on on the one hand, we have this, um, really this undue exaltation of Christian leaders, and which really amounts to simply the exaltation of mere men. Remember the old adage that the best of men are still men at best, and yet there is often a tendency to exalt and um, esteem in a way that uh, that goes above and beyond what God deems appropriate, but there's another there's another extreme that we see today too, and that is to simply just out of a sense of democracy or egalitarianism, just to dismiss the authority of Christian leaders altogether. You know, so it doesn't matter what what your Elders say it doesn't matter what leaders say because, you know, at the end of the day, my opinion's as good as theirs and so forth. In some ways, the first problem, the undue exaltation of Christian leaders, was, of course, the Corinthian problem. Um, the latter, dismissing the authority, may well have been the Hebrews' problem. But be that as it may, what Paul's doing in this section, so we saw last week, 318 through 4 or 5 makes a, a unit, it's a concluding or a summary unit. And what Paul does is in 3.18 to 23, he talks about how they should think about themselves. <laughs> you got to remember that this is the Corinthians' ultimate problem. It's, um, <laughs> sure, there's the problem of divisiveness and party spirit and all of that, but ultimately it is the problem of the way they think about themselves their own pride, their own arrogance. And, um, and so Paul actually revisits these themes of wisdom and folly and, and, um, and of course, 
the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God, right? And what is, what is God's wisdom? God's wisdom is the revelation of Christ and him crucified. And so if you really want to be wise by God's standards, you need to become a fool by the world's standards, and you need to embrace the gospel of Christ, which the world looks at as foolishness. But it's the gospel that is the very wisdom and power of God. And so Paul's trying to to reorient the Corinthians. He's trying to get them to reset according to to the cross. And then he reminds them, quite remarkably, I think, that everything belongs to them. But then he, he concludes it with, but you belong to Christ. And it's actually that last phrase, you belong to Christ. So Paul, Apollos, Cephas, we belong to you. You don't belong to us, but... Here's the bottom line, is that you belong to Christ. And so then he moves on into this next section, 4, 1 to 5, and talks about how they should think about God's servants. So you can see this really is actually nicely balanced, how you should think about yourself, and then how you should think about God's servants. And what this section is, is sort of a recap of 2, 6 through 3, 17. And in fact... There's an unmistakable connection. Paul says, let a man regard us, right, in this manner. And who's the us? Well, 322, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, all things belong to you. And so what Paul's going to do in this section is he's going to bring together two themes that he's already touched on. One, the apostles as servants, and then two, final judgment. The idea of giving an account, he's dealt with both of those, 3, 5 to 9, with the, the nature of the apostles as servants, but then 10 through 15 of chapter 3, giving an account. There's going to be an evaluation. What did you build with? Gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or stubble? And so Gordon Fee says quite wonderfully, he says, in many ways, this little section is Paul at his finest. So, verse 1, we could just simply say, think correctly about God's servants. Paul says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, here's the thing about verse 1, and I point this out probably every time I get the opportunity. This is an imperative. It's a command. It's a third-person command. In English, we only give second-person commands, okay? We don't, we don't have third-person imperatives. We only have second-person imperatives. If I say, um, clean your room, I'm directly addressing, okay, Tarkus, clean your room. Um, okay, that's second-person, okay? Y'all stand up. Um, that's second-person plural imperative, okay? But what happens is, is in our Bibles, a lot of times... It get, a third-person imperative gets translated as let, which, of course, misses the force of the imperative. Now, there's no neat way to do a third-person imperative, but you have to understand that, that the, the sense is something much more like this. A man must consider us like this, okay? In other words... What Paul is saying is not just let a a, a person consider us like this, but rather 
this is of necessity how you must think of us. Now, when he says us, he's, of course, talking about uh, himself and Apollos and Cephas, but I think he's talking about uh, Christian leaders in general as well, not only those that are, um, you know, the... the um, the big men on campus by the Corinthian standard, but also their own leaders. And this is how you must think of leaders, servants of Christ. (laughs) This is the manner in which you must consider us, servants of Christ. Now, Paul does not use the typical word for servant here. He uses a word that is, um, sometimes if you're reading in an older commentary, uh, you'll see where they make a big deal about this word meaning an under rower, okay? Because it's two words put together, it's a compound word meaning under and rower. And um, so they say, well, this is like a galley slave who's at the lowest level, you know, and the fact is, is that you don't actually do word studies like that, um, you know, like butterfly. You don't say, well, in the original uh, or, you know, the root meaning of butterfly is actually a fly that's made out of butter, right, or pineapple. I mean, you could go on and on and on. This is not how you do word study. So under row is really not what's in view. What's in view would be somebody who was, who was an assistant to um, a person who was a boss or an owner or a master, and they assisted that person in uh, fulfilling certain responsibilities and taking care of certain affairs. Okay? So the, the person is definitely a servant, but they're a servant in the sense of rendering assistance in looking out of the, fa- of the affairs of the master. So, so the, the, the word itself does two things. One, it, it, it conveys, in a sense, the lowly status of a servant, but yet it also conveys the important responsibilities that have been entrusted to that servant. So, so both of these things come together, okay? A, a servant is a servant, in fact, nobody likes being a servant, right? I mean, nobody comes into this world saying, you know what I want to be when I grow up? A servant. That's just not the way we're wired. The Son of Man came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If we were to make that verse about ourselves, we would say, we did not come into this world to serve, but to be served. Right? Right? And so the idea of being a servant, it really, it was, nobody looked at servants, no matter how, dig, how much dignity they had, as saying like, oh, wow, uh, what do you do? Well, I'm, I, I'm a servant. Oh, that's awesome. That is great. Do, do you do like job fair presentations? No, I'm just a servant. Okay. But I take care of the affairs of my master. So you have lowliness, and yet there's a dignity, there's an importance for what is being done. And then notice very clearly, Paul says, 
This is how you're supposed to regard us, as servants of Christ. What's interesting about this is that we might expect Paul to say something like this in light of what he just said at the end of chapter 3. We might expect him to say, this is how you're supposed to regard us as your servants. But he doesn't. He says, we're servants of Christ. Now, I'll tell you, this ends up being really important. It may seem, it may seem sort of just, you know, uh, this is an ordinary thing for Paul to say, but for him to actually shift from all things are yours to now, this is how you're supposed to regard us. We're servants, but we're servants of Christ. It's a reminder to the Corinthians that they serve Christ first and foremost. The assistants who have been put in charge of the master's affairs don't kowtow to all the other servants that may be beneath them. They are answerable and accountable to the one who is their master. And this ends up being, you know, an incredibly important thing because you're a servant of Christ first and foremost. This is, uh, this is something, boy, just uh, really struck me. Um, I have a good friend, and he uh, was on sabbatical, and while he was on sabbatical, the elders made a bunch of changes while he was gone. And he found out last night that part of those changes were them actually dictating a number of things, from how many hours he spends in the office to what he can and can't do and what he's what he is now supposed to do and and uh, <clears throat> and it just it struck me i thought where's the recognition that he's the servant of christ not our servant right I'll never forget in uh, when i was in seminary in portland you went into the basement <coughs> where you got your mail and there was a there was a job board and you'd look at the job board occasionally for uh, a chuckle and um it's typically baptist churches that wanted seminarians to come and just work for free and so <clears throat> there was one posting one time that was for a little uh, baptist church and it had the list of duties of uh, what was expected and um Mowing the lawn <laughs> was uh, was on there, and uh, am- among other menial tasks relating to janitorial work and stuff. And I'm thinking they don't want they don't want a pastor. They want they want somebody who's you know the uh, the maintenance guy. Um, and so Paul says, "Remember, we're Christ's servants." And then he says, "We're stewards of the mysteries of God." And again, a steward, it's a common enough word in the New Testament, right? You see it in the Gospels, for instance. But the steward of somebody that was entrusted with overseeing his master's household and his possessions and his goods. So in, in the Greco-Roman world, a steward, a household manager, was a person who, although he was definitely a subordinate, he was a person that had been given a delegated authority, There was a sense in which the steward, uh, in fact, if you remember the parable of the unjust steward, um, 
Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16, this steward had so much power that he could actually call his master's creditors and start doing what? Start slashing the bottom line of what they owed, right? And so here, Paul says, you need to consider us as stewards of the mysteries of God. We've already seen the way that Paul uses the word mystery. Remember, a mystery was something that God needed to reveal, typically something that was hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. And, of course, the mysteries of God for Paul is, is, is the revelation of the gospel, it's the revelation of God's plan of salvation in Christ. And what Paul is saying is, is that we actually have been entrusted as stewards to go and proclaim that which we've been entrusted with. And so in this sense, the, the, the steward, the steward actually um, is... <clears throat> is under tight authority to only do what the, what the master has um, uh, put on his agenda to do. And in this case, it's quite simple, and that is, as stewards of the mysteries of God, we have been entrusted with the revelation of the gospel, the message of salvation, and we in turn now are supposed to proclaim it. This actually is not all that hard. We're servants of Christ, and we're stewards of the mysteries of God, and that's how we want you to think about us. In a sense, as I've noted, there's a balance in these words. So, on the one hand, servants. David Garland makes the comment, he says, the terminology underlies, underlines the fact that ministers work under the orders of their master, and have no significance except in relation to their master, right? That, that's, that's the only significance. In a sense, that's what Paul's saying is, you have to look at us as our only significance is in terms of our relation to Christ. But then there's also that sense where they're entrusted, delegated authority, oversight, responsibility. And they will most definitely give an account to someone one day, which Paul's going to talk about shortly. But, but here's, here's the thing. I have a feeling that as Paul says, this is, how, this is how it is necessary for a person to regard us. Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. I have a feeling that the language kind of uh, shocked the Corinthians to some degree. You have to remember that the Corinthians had this had this uh, this this elevated view of these leaders, so that um, you know they were the ones who were the repository of all wisdom and knowledge and power, and 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 these were the things that were the values for the Corinthians. And so, for Paul to say, "Here's how I want you to think about us," notice he doesn't say. I want you to think about us as kings. I want you to think about us as as CEOs. Yet, by the way, that's a fairly common um, pastoral model today. The CEO, right? (laughs) I mean, and Paul says to these Corinthians who just 
loved their celebrity preachers. Just think about us as servants. Then Paul talks about the criterion for judging God's servants. Verse 2. He says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And so Paul actually makes this this connection in verse 2. In fact, you could probably say something like this if you wanted to paraphrase what Paul's doing. He says, so let me continue the picture for you. This is how you're to regard us, and now this is the most important thing about a servant. And that is that it is sought in stewards that one be found faithful. Trustworthy. Paul says, here's, here's, here's the ultimate standard that, that a servant is simply trustworthy or faithful in executing the duties and responsibilities that have been entrusted to him. At the end of the day, in, in a real sense, that's God's standard of success is faithfulness. Um, Gordon Fee says, not eloquence nor wisdom, nor initiative, nor success, the more standard contemporary requirements, of course, but faithfulness to the trust is what God requires of his servants. For Paul, this means absolute fidelity to the gospel as he received it and preached it. And so for Paul, this is, this, is, this is really simple. As he looks at what he's been called to do, what, has, what he is, has been assigned to do by his master, called to do and entrusted to do as a steward, Paul says there's, there's one ultimate aim because there's one ultimate criterion, and that is that we be found faithful. That's all. That's all. Now, this is true, not just to Paul, of course, but all who would be servants and stewards. Faithfulness is the standard by which the master will judge his servant. You know, we, we, we have so many different standards of success. A number of years ago, Kent Hughes wrote a wonderful book called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome and uh, tells his own story. For those of you who don't know, Kent Hughes was pastor of College Church in Wheaton for many, many, many years. And um, what, a, what a wonderful book. But you look at all of, the, all of the standards of success for ministers or pastors today, and what are those standards Big church, right? Numbers. Numbers equal success. Money. Big budgets equal success. Empires, lands, buildings equal success. 
big staff, having 30 people under you, success, eloquence, preaching at all of the, all of the best-known conferences, that's success. And Paul says, none of that actually matters at the end of the day. What, what the steward is going to be held responsible for is this. Was he faithful in executing the duties that have been given to him by the master? That's all. Faithfulness. On the last day, I just doubt Jesus is going to say, so what was the membership? <laughs> as, as if somebody would need to tell him anyway. I, what? How, how much did you, did you grow over X amount of years? What was your final budget? None of those things are going to come up, but faithfulness will. Faithfulness will. Did you proclaim the gospel as it was entrusted to you? Did you preach the whole counsel of God? Did you faithfully deal with the sheep that God had entrusted to your care? That's what he's going to ask. And so Paul makes it clear that the Corinthian standards for ministerial success are not the same as God's standards for ministerial success. The Corinthians would have said, were you on TV? Were you, were you syndicated on radio? Were you on XM radio? How many books did you write? Did, were you one of the guys that together for the gospel? I think I remember you. That's the stuff the Corinthians were excited about. Paul says, I'm excited about being faithful. (laughs) You know, that's all that a church has the right to expect from those who are elders and pastors, that they're faithful. Right? Well, Paul now goes on, <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you, this part gets a little, um, seems a little odd at first. Paul says in verse 3, but to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you. Now, it may seem like Paul's saying, you know what, I don't really care what you think about me. And there's probably an element of truth to that. But what Paul is focusing on is the insignificance of present judgment. Okay. The insignificance of present judgment. You could translate that first part something like this. It's a matter of the least consequence to me that I'm examined by you. Now, why would, why would Paul say that? Was he... Was he um, you know, was he so ticked at the Corinthians that he just felt just like saying, you know what, I don't really care what you think about me. 
I don't think that that's probably it. Somehow I don't think Paul did raspberries, but... So here's, here's my take. It's, it's possible there's a segment of people in the Corinthian church who felt it was their job to evaluate Paul and his gifts and were incredibly harsh with him. We actually, we know that that's true by 2 Corinthians. I'm not exactly convinced that that's the case in 1 Corinthians. I have a feeling, though, that what, what, what Paul's getting at is, is that there was sort of this general perspective in the Corinthian church regarding leaders, and that was, you know what, it's, it's, it's really, it's our job to examine and to judge and to evaluate and, and to check out their wisdom, spirituality, knowledge, power credentials. Now, this is not to say that there will be some preachers you like to listen to better than others, all right? There are just certain people that are actually wonderful preachers, but there are certain things that just like nails on a chalkboard to me, right? So I, I don't, Paul's, not, Paul's not talking about that. What Paul's getting at is, is that although he belongs to them, 322, right? He's Christ's servant first and foremost, and to be judged or evaluated by them, especially by their standards, is just such an insignificant thing for Paul. It's like Paul could say, I don't, I don't really care that you're not impressed with my preaching. I, I don't really care that you think there are guys who are more knowledgeable than me. For you to pass those kinds of judgments on me doesn't mean anything. And so, Don Carson, in his terrific little book on 1 Corinthians and Christian leadership, says, he says, the church is to avoid judging these leaders as if the church itself were the ultimate arbiter of ministerial success. Now, now you know that for 2,000 years, the church hasn't listened to this. (laughs) You understand that, right? I mean, you know, in certain denominations, you, you have uh, uh, ladders to climb, right? I just, uh, over the summer, read a very depressing biography on A.W. Tozer. Tozer was a wonderful man of God, but also had many flaws. And so Tozer would go, he was in Christian and Missionary Alliance, and Tozer would go and it, at first, he goes to these little country churches in West Virginia and Pennsylvania, and he goes to these little dilapidated churches of just a few people, starts preaching, and people start coming to hear him. And so then what, what the Christian and Missionary Alliance would do is say, wow, look at that. Well, maybe what we need to do is move them here. And so they'd move them to a bigger city, and then to a bigger city, then to a bigger city, and then ultimately to Chicago, because the whole idea was, hey, you know what, we've you know, we've got a guy here that can really attract the people. I'm not saying Tozer was a ladder climber, but it certainly is something that is present with us today. 
there are lots of reasons for this, but you understand that the, that the average tenure of an evangelical pastor is about four years, and in certain denominations, less than that. Southern Baptists, for instance, are less than four years. I think they're at about three years. CMA actually is very, it was 18 months for a while. Hopefully it's better. Um, People don't stay long, and there's a lot of reasons why they don't stay long. But one of the reasons is, is because, hey, looking for greener pastures, bigger, you know, bigger churches. And so Paul says, says, you know, for you to assess me, it doesn't mean anything to me. (laughs) He says, nor actually by any human court. So you have to understand, he's he's talking about the the insignificance of present judgment. So first, it's nothing for you to judge me. And then he says, not even to be judged by a human court, literally uh, by a human day, which is an idiom. We actually have a similar idiom. If you go to court, we say, you had your day in court, right? And so what, and it's just a, just in a sense, a human uh, court, right? Um, But I think it's, Paul uses the idiom on purpose, the human day, in direct contrast to the ultimate day in court, which is the day of the Lord, all right? And so, Paul isn't, isn't just kind of disregarding the legal system, although he is going to, very shortly, argue that human courts are a part of this world which is passing away, right? But what Paul's saying is that even, even the Roman legal system... It's a small thing for them to judge me. And then Paul says, this is striking, I don't even judge myself. Now, again, you have to keep this in context. The insignificance of present judgment. It's a small thing for you to judge me. It'd be a small thing for a Roman court to judge me. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Now, we have to explain what Paul means because is Paul against self-examination? No, not at all. In fact, we could point to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27 as an example where Paul actually does examine himself, right? Paul sees the role of self-examination, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He sees the importance of self-examination to lead us to confession and repentance. But what he is saying is that human judgments are of little consequence, including his own. He is the servant of another. And so ultimately, even what he thinks of himself doesn't ultimately matter. Gordon Fee says it so well here. He says, his personal evaluations of his own performance are irrelevant. What his master thinks is what counts. You know, this is, this is actually good advice in our day and age because we have such incredibly high opinions of ourselves, don't we? When 90% of college students think they're above average, <laughs> I mean, just do the math. That's just an impossibility, right? You have an average. 90% are not above the average. Um, 
there was a great, uh, great little book by a gal named Cordelia Fine called I Told Me So. And um, it's basically the way that our brains love to uh, so flatter ourselves that we minimize our faults and uh, uh, inflate our virtues. All right? So, uh, you know, remember what Paul said last week, 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no man deceive himself. Right? And so here, this is, this is great, I think. I don't even judge myself because at the end of the day, my evaluation of my performances are irrelevant. You know, I'll tell you, this is, this is hard for uh, young preachers to learn because, um, you know, and I, I used to do this all the time. You put so much stock in how good or bad the sermon was. And, you know, your whole, your whole Sunday could be completely ruined when you think you had just nailed it, preached like Spurgeon reincarnated. And then your wife says, were you feeling okay today? You seemed a little off. <laughs> right? <laughs> so you start to think, okay, well, <laughs> my perception of what happened is not her perception of what happened. Right, and so Paul says, I, I, "I don't even judge myself." And then, then he turns around and and he says in verse four, "This is this is his explanation in a sense." For I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not acquitted by this. But the one who examines me is the Lord. So I'm thankful for verse four because it really does put verse three into context. I am conscious of nothing against myself. Now, Paul does not mean by that, that I am conscious of no sin within myself, all right? Uh, you can't read Romans seven fourteen to 25 and conclude that Paul had come to the point in his life where, oh, by the way, he writes Romans probably from Corinth. And so anyway, it, it, it's, it's just impossible. It, it's impossible to think that the man who said, this is a trustworthy statement and deserving all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into this world to die for sinners, among whom I am chief. Right? So Paul sees himself as the chief of sinners. He sees himself as one that in, in whom there is indwelling sin in a battle. So he's not saying when he says, I don't, I don't have, I can't find anything against myself. He's not saying, I don't have any sins to deal with. But I do think that what he's saying is, in terms of my service to Christ, in terms of my stewardship of the gospel, my conscience is clear. My conscience is clear. I, I, I actually, as I, as I evaluate myself, and this is the reason why I don't do it, is because I can't see anything against myself as far as my calling and the execution of my ministry goes. But then Paul very, very quickly says, but I've not been justified by this. Very important statement. I would say, I would, I would, I would put Paul's comment like this. Having... Having a good conscience before the Lord is good, right? It, in fact, it's an invaluable thing in some ways, right? When you think about the alternative, which of course is a bad conscience, okay? So a, a good conscience with the Lord is a good thing, but it is not a good conscience which actually justifies or vindicates me. 
Why? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, Jeremiah 17, 9 just looms over us, right? The heart is deceitful above all else, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so Paul makes the point that, that a clear conscience is no basis for acquittal before God. I love what Garland says here. He says, we're not justified by our own good opinion of ourselves because our own opinions may not be justified. And so Paul then turns around and he says, and the one judging me is, is the Lord. So I'm not justified because I think that I've been faithful. I'm not vindicated by that. I, I look at what God's called me to do as, a, as a, 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 a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. And, and, and as I look at that calling, I can't think of anything that, that, that I have been derelict in or negligent in. But at the end of the day, that's not what vindicates me before God. It is the Lord who judges me. In other words, what Paul's doing is, is, is in a sense, he's, he's saying, I belong to Christ, I'm Christ's servant, and I'm accountable to him. Therefore, what you think, what a human court thinks, even what I think doesn't ultimately matter. What supremely matters is what Christ thinks. Paul could say, in a sense, on that day, I'm going to give an account. It's not going to be to you. And it's not going to be to any human court. And in fact, I'm not even going to give an account to myself. I'm going to give an account to the only one who can infallibly judge my faithfulness. So now you understand that in verse 2 when he says that, uh, that a servant must be, a steward must be found faithful. He is found faithful by the Lord. Okay. Now Paul then concludes and wraps this up and he talks about the judgment at the Lord's coming. And so the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light, will, will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. I think that the first clause in verse 5 could well be um, translated, stop judging before the time. Now, Paul's actually saying that, listen, there's, there's an appointed time for, for the verdict. Now's not the time. So you doing all of this judging and verdict making is actually irrelevant. Now, does Paul mean when he says, don't judge before the time, is Paul saying all judgment is uh, forbidden? Not at all. In fact, in the very next chapter... 
he's going to say that you are supposed to judge those within the body when they're in sin. Okay? Yeah. Actually says that. You are to make a you are to make a determination as a church when somebody is living in a way that's contrary to their Christian profession, and that is called judgment, right? You know the unbeliever's favorite verse, right? Judge not, lest ye, it's always in the King James too, lest ye be judged, this carries more authority that way. Paul's not saying don't make a judgment. In fact, in chapter 6, he's going to tell him, you should be making judgments among yourselves and not having human courts make these judgments for you. You're taking each other to court and that before unbelievers. Aren't you competent to make these judgments? So Paul is not talking about um, not making any judgments whatsoever. What he is talking about specifically is passing verdicts on God's servants when that's ultimately God's job. There's an appointed day for that. He says, New American Standard, um, I, I think probably the ESV does something similar, but wait, you might notice that's in italics, it actually helps clarify it a little bit, uh, but wait until the Lord comes. Now, that doesn't mean don't judge now, wait to judge until when the Lord comes. I can promise you when the Lord comes, you will give up all desire for judging. <laughs> and in fact, we'll be focused on one thing, mercy, <laughs> right? So he's simply saying... The Lord is going to come. By the way, when Paul uses Lord, he almost always is referring to Jesus. When the Lord comes, he's the one who's going to judge. You know, I'm uh, working on this, um, these problem of evil lectures for Reformed Baptist Seminary. And I was thinking, going over stuff today and and so when we think about the problem of evil we we realize god actually has an ultimate remedy for evil it's final judgment right? evil is not just allowed to run its course god has an appointed day where he will deal with evil and then end evil And Acts 17.31 tells us that he's appointed a day for judgment, which he will bring about through his son. And so the Lord Jesus will return and actually be the one who judges. And and here's here's the thing. So when the Corinthians are passing these evaluations on their favorite or let's say not so favorite preachers, How accurate were those assessments? Hmm? Do you think God was sitting there going, Boy, they almost got that one. They, you know, missed it by that much. No. Here's, here's the problem with, with, with 
our evaluations is that we're fallen and we're finite and we are biased. And so when Jesus returns and judges, he's not fallen, he's not finite, nor is he biased. He will actually judge, Romans chapter 2, according to truth. Think about that. A righteous judgment according to truth. Do you know there is, there is no human court in all of the world and throughout all of human history that has been able to judge in perfect righteousness according to truth. Why? Because that requires an omniscient judge who knows all things. And so when Jesus comes back, he'll be the judge. And so what Paul's saying is, you know what? You can wait. You can wait. And then this gets a little scary. Look at this. Speaking about the Lord, who shall bring to light the hidden things of darkness? What does Paul have in mind here? Well, some of the commentators think that Hidden things of darkness means the, the hidden faults that we don't, that we don't see. Um, sort of like what you have in Psalm 19. Um, um, keep your servant back from hidden faults, right? So that, that's, that's possible. But to me, the little phrase of darkness means that there's something a little more sinister than just the faults that I don't see in myself. Do we have faults that we don't see in ourselves? You might want to do this. Yes. Yeah, I do. You do. You do. In fact, after service, I'll tell you what they are. No. Um, This is why God gives us wives and children, right? (laughs) I wasn't angry. Yes, you were angry. It could be that. But boy, hidden, hidden deeds of hidden things of darkness sounds a little more sinister than that, doesn't it? Think about this. What Paul probably has in mind are the sins that we hide from others. Now, he could say something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 where we don't walk in, in the hidden things of darkness, right? So it, you have to understand what Paul's saying. In, in 2 Corinthians 4.2, the idea is, is that that's not where we live. That's not where we traffic, okay? Because a person who says they're one thing, but yet lives in the hidden things of darkness, we have a name for that person, a Bible name. Right, a hypocrite, right? To say you're one thing and yet to be, so to live, in a sense, two different lives. To say, look how much I love Jesus and how pious I am over here, and then just to be trafficking in the hidden things of darkness over here, all right? And now, that'll be exposed on the last day, right? How shocked we're going to be, right? Seriously, how shocked we're going to be. The hidden things of darkness exposed. All the sins that we've hidden from others. But I don't think Paul's just talking about the 
hypocrite who's peddling the word of God for gain. I think he's talking about all of us where, where we're going to be exposed on that day. We've had this, uh, this discussion before. What, what, what is judgment day going to look like? Right? And there's, there's been a debate over throughout church history is what, what's going to be, what's going to be brought up on judgment day? Don't you want to know? Doesn't that seem important? I think, and I say this tentatively, all right, I think that we are terribly mistaken if we think that Judgment Day is going to be like high school awards banquet for Christians. The most improved student goes to, right? The best inspiration for the PE class belongs to. It's not going to be like that. When you read the passages that deal with judgment, Paul says, for instance, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we all must appear before the Bema seat of Christ and give an account for the deeds we've done in the body, whether good or bad. And you say, well, what about my, my sins being forgiven and cast as far as the east is from the west? Okay. Well, that's led many people, no one less than Jonathan Edwards, to say that our sins won't be brought up on that day. And I will tell you, I hope Jonathan Edwards is right. I do. But I think that we need to take the Bible seriously about what that day is going to be like. And if you're a Christian, it may be that our sins are brought up as forgiven sins. No condemnation, for sure. You could well imagine maybe um, the judge going through the books and saying, on this day, Brian Borgman did this and this, and this and this and this and this and this. And Jesus says, it's true, Father, but I paid for those sins. I think that actually brings more glory to Jesus in the atonement although it is painfully uncomfortable for us. Now, I don't often hope that I'm wrong, but I hope I'm wrong. But notice what Paul says. He is going to bring to light the hidden things of darkness and shall reveal what? The intentions of the heart. Yikes! It's bad enough to have our deeds exposed. Could you imagine, I've, I've often thought this would just absolutely just be like the worst Sunday ever. But let's say there was like this special Holy Spirit GoPro. Okay? And it just, and it just, just videotaped your day. Okay? So every word 
that came out of your mouth. Think about this. Every word that came out of your mouth and everything that you did within a 24-hour period is recorded. Okay? And then on Sunday, we said, today, our feature film is a day in the life of Arnie. We'd be like, oh, I can't even believe I'm his friend. And then they say, next feature. Well, by the time we're done, we're also disgusted with ourselves and with each other that we would want to run for the hills and never see another human being ever again. But this is not just the words that come out of our mouth. By the way, Jesus in Matthew 12 tells us that every idle word will give an account for And it's not just the deeds that we've done, but he says he's going to expose, he's going to bring to light the intentions of the heart. We've gone from bad to worse. It's one thing to hear or see my words and deeds, but my goodness to expose the intentions of my heart? Who wants that to happen? Paul says that's that's what he's going to do. And so for Paul, the idea is, listen, you know, ultimately this is why you can wait for Jesus to come back because there's nothing hidden on that day. Because he sees all and he knows all. And I think Paul actually could, could, could say to the Corinthians that, um, th- that I do try to live my life in such a way that I'm ready for that day. Boy, we lose sight of that pretty quickly, don't we? What, what if every morning our alarm clock woke us up with these words? The day of judgment is coming. Your heart will be exposed. Be ready. Now, for the Corinthians, I think that Paul is telling them, you know what, you you better start thinking about the judgment that really matters. Your little petty evaluations of me and Apollos and Peter and, you know, your leader. You better get focused on the judgment that really, really matters. Now, here's what's interesting. And I don't don't know exactly what to make of it. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. You ever deal with that obstinate little kid? And you just feel like every time I say something to this boy, it is just stop doing this, don't do that, quit being naughty. And what I need to do is say something nice. Now, I mean, for me, that, that was a, a challenge, right? It's a challenge. 
two boys, it was a challenge. Say something nice. You got nice eyebrows. What's so hard for us, I think our father delights to do. I think our father delights to actually give words of praise to his people. And so on that day, uh, it'll be a painful day, but here's Paul's, here's Paul's point, is that, is that our future reward is going to come from the words of praise from our father. You know, people get so silly about what eternal reward is going to look like, right? So, oh, I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to be the governor of 10 cities and, and uh, well, I'm going to be, you know, I'm such a lousy Christian. I'm going to be, you know, scrubbing urinals in the new Jerusalem and, and uh, well, I'll be actually have my own street of gold named after me and, uh, you know, on and on. And here's, 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 the, here's the reward, The God of heaven saying, well done, good and faithful servant. There's nothing better than that. I think Paul looked forward to the day when he would stand before his Lord, not perfect, but clothed in Christ's righteousness, the hidden things revealed, the intentions of the heart revealed, and yet the God who judges is the God who judges according to truth, and he has love in his heart towards his people, and so he finds things to praise them for. Praise from God is the highest honor, is it not? Well, what a great passage. The Corinthians, of course, loved judging Christ's servants by their standards. Those standards, of course, skewed by their own sense of self-importance, wisdom, and spirituality. What God requires at the end of the day, and this is true not only of pastors and elders and deacons, but of all of us. What God requires is not impressive gifts. What he requires is faithfulness. Faithfulness to the word, faithfulness to your calling, faithful service to Christ and to others. That's what God looks at. That's what God looks at. And one day, we'll have a public examination Nothing will be hidden. And we really should live in light of being ready for that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you (coughs) for your son, the Lord Jesus, and that he's bore all of our sins. Father, we pray that you'd help us to deal ruthlessly with the hidden things of darkness and help us to be sensitive to the thoughts and intentions of the heart which are judged not by us but by your word. And we pray, Father, that you would instill in us passion for faithfulness, 
Lord, no matter what our calling, no matter what our stewardship, no matter what our area of service, may we simply seek to be found faithful. And we ask this in the name of the one who was perfectly faithful, your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.